0: You know, I'd love to talk about a little bit of the history of Barton. We can do that. I love me some I Barton. How about we start
1: off with doing some of that? Well, I'm going to pour some more if I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding.
2: <laughs> There's nothing better than getting a fan of the show who's also a great guest back on the program but that guest also happens to be the master distiller at one of the most recognizable names in the Kentucky distilling industry, and that's Danny Kahn. He joins us once again to talk about a few topics that we're all interested in hearing about. We cover things like the 1792 Barrel Program. Then we take a hard left and talk about yeast for a bit. So if you love the science behind bourbon, make sure to pay attention. And then we end up going through a tasting and talking about the 2022 release of Thomas S. Moore the brand that Danny's in charge of releasing every year using extra-aged barrel finishes. And when we say extra-aged, we're not talking aged for six months in an additional cask. We're talking years. With that, enjoy this week's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char.
0: I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Timothy Urbanek. I hope I said that right. He writes, uh, I go through times where I don't really feel like drinking any of my bourbon or any alcohol at all. I'm still super passionate about bourbon and active in my bourbon groups and buying barrel picks. Is this normal? And will I see negative changes in my palate after not drinking for a couple of months? You know, Timothy, this is a great question. I regularly take time off. As a professional taster, you need to know... When your palate is off and there are times that it's off and that it is my body it's my mood. And there's a whole philosophy in wine that it's called, you know, that basically the alignment of the stars can have an influence on, on how you taste. And I'm not going down that road necessarily for bourbon, but I do know that there are times my body is not wanting to sip any alcohol. And sometimes that's my body communicating like, listen, bro, we need to take a break. So I think it's very important that you do listen to your body and you do not force yourself to drink bourbon just because you want to maintain your palate. In fact, I would argue that by giving yourself time off, you're giving your palate rest, you're allowing yourself to listen to your body. And the times that I have done that, my palate's been stronger when I came back uh, after a break of a week or so. So, you know, listen to your body and a lot of times the the desire to not to taste alcohol is is connected to an emotional state it can be connected to uh, an anniversary of something that happened to you it can be connected to like the the loss of a friend or something that's going on in your life it could also be connected to your diet you may be eating things that are really taking a toll on your liver and you don't realize it and your liver is basically saying like listen we need to give this this puppy a break. We can't do bourbon and all these Cheetos at the same time. So I think you need to uh, just evaluate yourself and don't beat yourself up about this. And bourbon is, is a hobby that does not need to be consumed to enjoy it. Does it help? Absolutely. But you know the history of it, the camaraderie of people, I don't think you have to be drinking bourbon all the time to experience that. And certainly these are good people. In the, in the world of bourbon, no one's going to judge you. So uh, I hope that helps you, Timothy, and good luck in finding your palate and uh, what days you you like to taste, but I don't think you'll see any negative changes. And that's this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Timothy, hit me up on Fredminick.com. That's Fredminick.com. Hit the contact button and let me know your idea. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers.
2: and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel, It's Bourbon Night, bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixirs Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at WhiskeyAmbitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. welcome everybody we're back with an episode of bourbon pursuit the official podcast of bourbon today we've got another great guest on the show that you've heard him before but before we get into that we've got the whole gang here we got ryan hello i'm here and we got fred
0: hey what's going on
2: and we're gonna be talking about some barton today and some not just barton but also some thomas s Moore, and some other kind of cool things Mm -hmm. about our guest our guest has been one of the people that we love to go and pick barrels with every once in a while we we show up at barton and Actually, usually when I'm driving down there, I'm like, oh crap, we should probably tell Danny we're coming. Oh, send him the text message, fire the bat signal in the air, and he's like,
1: sure, I'll make a minute for you and come over and say hi. He always pops in and uh, validates our pick or not, you know, if it's a good one or not. No, Danny's been awesome. We, I got to do a cool uh, seminar at the Burn Beyond. I don't know if you remember that, doing the where you and the brewers from the Lagunitas guys were getting into it, you know, like I'm, I'm better. You're better. No, I'm kidding. That, that was fun though. I loved, I loved doing that. I remember Not that. Yeah. I wish you were here last time that Danny was here because he brought
2: like 148 to 160 proof bourbon for us to taste through. Oh, wow. It was, it was an interesting,
0: it interesting was a hazing bourbon. session. And <laughs> <it was> like, <laughs> Take if, this Kenny. If you think about all the, all the brands or all the whiskey that Danny creates that touches uh, multiple brands because, you know, Barton, you know, goes out in the brokerage world and they supply the likes of Total Wine and, and Costco and, and people like that. You think about all the whiskey that this man puts on people's shelves. It's amazing. There's a lot in
2: there. It's a ton. It is. It's good to see that. But let's go ahead. Let's bring him on to the show. What do you say? So today on the show, you heard him back on episode 284. But welcome back. Danny Kahn, the master distiller over at Barton 1792.
3: Awesome to be here. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the last visit and I enjoyed um, talking to you guys at various locations, but can I make one correction? Yep, please. When Ryan said that I was there to validate your selection. Oh, no. You, absolutely not. You did. You chose a different barrel, if I remember. No, no, but remember, when we do single barrels, um, it's what you prefer. Now, if we're doing a blend, if we're blending for our foolproof or our small batch or bottled in bond, there may be a target profile. But to tell somebody what they like best is is never the case. So when I do taste... We kind of like to be told what's best, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember you picked a good one. I don't remember the details, but I, I think I was aligned. Um, I, I think the objective notes were consistent, whether the preference was consistent, the objective notes were. So that's typically what I'll do. I'll taste and I'll give my comments without indication of preference. Because if somebody picks a barrel and I were to say, you're wrong...
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> like, like, like i guess you're right crawl back, back in my hole back to and get us three
0: more then you yeah. just you would just be objective that's all you know We'd just be objective about the whiskey Maybe uh, but you but you all do like you have to approve the whiskey though before you all put it out in the rotation for a barrel pick right
3: well we we approve a couple things we make sure that there's adequate volume mm-hmm. we make sure that the proof is flexible enough where we can make full proof And if there are any significant characters that we don't like, we will not let it go. But we, that box is pretty big. And that's the beauty of single barrel Mm -hmm. is that it allows for variation because of um, location, because of barrel, because of the juice that went into it. So we allow a pretty wide range of acceptable flavors. How many barrels
1: are allocated to 1792 to just that brand? We don't have to get into like each different facet of it, just as a, on general.
3: Well, for for the single barrel in particular? For single barrels this year. Well, for year, everything and then single barrel, I guess. Well, you know, I would have to I honestly don't know that answer. Gotcha. But I will tell you for single Roughly. barrel this year we're doing about fourteen hundred barrels. Oh wow. And I and I and we've got a lot more than that in house. A time. lot more. Yeah. yeah Gotta supply
1: the nation. So we're trying to do in a year. It makes me feel good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how much of uh how much of your uh of your barrels are going toward like some of your private label partners?
3: Not so much, and and to your comment earlier, where we were sourcing a lot. I know there has been historically a lot of bourbon that has been sold, mm-hmm. and it was distributed out on many labels that we absolutely have no control over. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. Maybe some has been sold in the past, but right now we are saving all of our bourbon for our brands and for some of our special partners.
0: Was was that a was that a recent kind of recent decision?
3: As long as I've been here. Um, for a while, we were still making some bourbon for a third party contract, and I am so glad that is over because we want it and need it for ourselves. So that is ended, and everything we make is is for us, and we cannot make enough based on our current projections.
0: And you said special partners does Does that mean what does that mean? Does that mean like uh, it's like that Kirkland denim, like Kirkland, you know, or It's or, really nice and snug?
3: Yeah, I think I think Kirkland's a good example, and and right. I'll tell you what that was um, an interesting exercise because. We did not just say, here are some barrels. They came to our facility and we went through a round of tasting and we came up with a blend out of a certain amount of allocated barrels that we were going to offer up to them. So I was impressed that they have really good tasters. And I think they made some very good decisions. And uh, one of those bottles has my name on it. So you know, make, make sure that we were going to make sure it was a good bourbon. But I'm really happy with how those turned out.
1: Well, it makes sense because they're they're like one of the biggest wine producers, so I'm sure they they wanted the same quality and you know on the bourbon side as well.
3: Yeah, and I, I'll tell you what they're um, they're hard because they're demanding. They have high standards. It was it's a nice partnership.
0: Did you get a one of those like tasters? Like, did you get to pre-select the tasters? That you know, one minute they're doing like M Ms, and the next minute they're doing like Kirkland Barton in the in the shop. Did you get to? That opportunity,
3: I did not. No, No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've always wondered what that interview process is like. Yeah,
2: I mean, I look at that as as actually a, a great relationship when you think about Kirkland, you think about stuff like that, only because it's it's kind of what you all are trying to do as well. It's it's very high volume, it's decent margin, but it's not. It's not stretching out the consumer. It's not what you see some of these $150 products that are coming out and you're like, wait a minute, where is this all coming from sort of thing? So I, I do kind of see that. And I, I guess the next question is, how do, you, how do you get the handshake to become one of those partners? Like how big do you have to be? What kind of scale point here?
3: Well, that's um, – so my focus obviously is making bourbon and um, the capacity <laughs> that's and a, that's the quality. A decision, yeah. Yeah. So although I, I may be uh, <laughs> sort of looking in on the periphery, uh, my focus is pretty singular that no, sounds good so you're talking about production
1: what are you producing now and what do you need to be producing <laughs> yeah, there's the there's the stare like i don't know if i should tell well we
3: don't have to we, well we well, go to
1: something else i just get curious
3: um 100 percent. i am producing whiskey Sure, no, I understand. And uh no, <laughs> so how much are you producing? Sorry. <laughs> um well, we are we are cooking at our absolute max. Um and just to put that in perspective, we've done things to make ourselves more efficient, meaning we have less downtime, and the and the beauty of that, that doesn't just speak to quantity, but when you are running in a more consistent fashion, it makes sure that we have better control and that we are producing higher quality. So that also our shutdowns in the summer have gone down from ten weeks to three weeks, and then one in the winter. So our shutdown window is shorter. We're producing six and a half days a week, so we're, we're producing a lot.
0: So Barton is this uh, incredible distillery that was founded by an iconic person in the in the bourbon game called uh, what Oscar gets the. Uh, Actual Museum of Whiskey is na- is named after him. He wrote one of the very first books dedicated to bourbon. And he was a really great uh, historian. And like he was, when he was going to name this, he basically had a bunch of names in a hat and he pulled the name out of the hat and Barton came up. And there was like, a, there was a very prominent uh, master distiller in Owensboro, actually, with the last name of Barton. So he put in a lot of bourbon-related names. And so it's thought to be that's who it was was named after. But Barton became like this this brand that was, its entire job was to supply people who wanted a white label. This was a business model for the 1960s when bourbon was absolutely booming. And it's been amazing to see how that heritage is is still there. And I'm curious, uh, Danny, from, from the old days, uh, you know, like 1960s to today, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are still there that were, that were there in the 60s. Like, are you all still using the
3: same yeast? Uh, well, well, can I go back even further than the 60s? Let's do I it. Um, now, I, I will tell you, though, that I am a little intimidated about that because you are a historian. And a whiskey historian to boot. So I will. He's pre- no Oscar good, so. <laughs> I True. will. I will preface this by saying that um, some of the dates that I might provide are probably close, and I have no problem if you correct me. Okay, because um, there there are some concerns there. But we're gonna we're gonna taste something here in a little bit, and when we talk about the distillery, there are two physical features in our distillery that have been up since 1879. So the um, uh, sort of limestone wall of our uh, boiler room mm-hmm. is original construction and then the old cooper shop which is currently a maintenance shop which might be turned into something down the road is also from 1879 the rest of the facade of the distillery was built in the 1940s so if we go back to when this distillery originated and i believe it was 1879 it was the Thomas S Moore distillery and that was soon after Thomas Moore sold his shares to the Mattingly portion of the Mattingly and Moore distillery, which literally in our facility, I believe our bottle shop is where the Mattingly and Moore distillery was. And when Thomas Moore sold out, he went literally across the street to build the Thomas Moore distillery. And that ran up until Prohibition. And then we did not run apparently during Prohibition. And after Prohibition, his son, Cornelius Moore, known as Corn, Cornmore, con, excuse me, con. I um, yeah, I don't know. Con, con <laughs> hey, is hey, like. I mean, I feel like
0: it. I feel like there should be some like you know connection there. There,
3: there is con! con. There is kind of, and I've heard that before, by the way. So he started up again in '33 and um, sold to Getz, I believe, in 1945. The distillery burned to the ground in 1946 ish. Um, you. Get a bunch of Kentucky good old boys and a bunch of high proof spirits, and you know something happened, and it burned to the ground. Anyway, so so to your original question, and by the way, Getz had it until I believe 1982 when he retired and then sold it. Unfortunately, he died in '83. And for those who don't know or who are soon to visit Bardstown, all of his memorabilia related to his book, to I guess to some degree, yeah. uh, was donated to the. Oscar Getz Whiskey Museum. Is that the correct yeah. full name?
0: It's the Oscar Getz Museum of Whiskey. Museum of Whiskey, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's a great, great, great place.
3: Incredible. And it's in a historic place as well, Spaulding Hall, which has got a history too. But anyway,
0: Totally haunted. Yeah. Totally haunted. You walk, you walk in there and you can just feel the haunted.
3: <laughs> I went to many events there as a kid. It, it's, I went to school just right down the road. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. So anyway, so back to your original question, if I remember it. Um, we have some fermenters that were built in 1944. Cyprus. And uh, not Cyprus, no, but they are Cyprus. we we have actual blueprints. Makers, right? They're literally blueprints and they say copper bearing carbon steel. So there is also copper within that carbon steel that was probably there mostly for corrosion. Mm-hmm. But copper as we all know in the fermentation and distillation world is critically important. So they are copper bearing carbon steel and then we have a series of fermenters that were installed in um 1969, and then we get more contemporary. We have stainless steel from 2017, 2020, and then a little bit from 2021. So there is a history of old equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the gearboxes, a lot of the piping goes back to the 40s. So there is, you know, an interesting thing that goes with carbon steel as well. You know, carbon steel cannot be um, cleaned in the same way as stainless steel. So we have to be very, very careful. And there's a certain amount of terroir, as I would call it, that sort of resides in our distillery. There are things that that grow that are flavor enhancing, and I think it's a big part of our signature. So there there's there's a lot of history going on at this distillery for sure.
0: So um so the the original yeast are you are you all still using that?
3: Sorry, I know I forgot something. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs>
0: Bring him back. Bring him back in. <laughs> no, but first of all, that was that was awesome. Good history lesson. That was. Good I love. History. I love. Uh, I love that you went to Thomas Moore because that's you know we're obviously going to be tasting his stuff uh, in a minute. But uh, I, I really, I, you know, when I th- when I think of Barton, I still think of like the contemporary sense because that's where the you know that's where the stamp for this that facility has been to me it was like it started in the '60s and definitely I revere Oscar Getz, you know, because like. As a whiskey historian, his name is long forgotten amongst people, and, and you know, and you know, the bourbon craze. Uh, to be honest with you, most people don't really care about the history; they just want to know if something's good, and that bothers me a little bit. And so, like, whenever I can talk about Oscar Gads, it's, it's an honor for me to do so. Awesome. But, uh,
3: I mean, I mean, the, his, the history is incredible, and and to have a real history, yeah, not just a story on a label that makes no sense, but to have a real history that is tangible. I mean, that that's what makes. One of the things that make whiskey incredible is there is a history. So the history
0: to the the, yeast would be
3: (laughs) 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 Okay, so I'm not avoiding that on purpose. Uh, But but unfortunately it's 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 really tough to say because I don't think our strength was in record keeping. Yeah. And as long as we can look back, we've been using the same or a similar yeast. I cannot say with certainty though.
0: It's different from Buffalo Trace though.
3: Yes, absolutely. It's very different than Buffalo Trace. And although we are owned by the same parent company, yeah. we have our independence and we have our brands and we have our signature and we are trying to do our own thing. And, and that's why you don't see Sazerac on the outside because we are Barton 1792. And that, 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 that local personal touch I think mm-hmm. is really important. We all feel that
0: and the reason why i'm dialing in on the on the yeast aspect is because of that very particular banana note i often get in a lot of barton products which most tasters would point toward being yeast related mm-hmm. and so that and i've had uh, a lot of vintage barton products that did not have that banana note and, I, and it could be dissipated over time with you know storage or whatever But um, I was just curious because I didn't know that answer.
3: Well, well, I'll tell you something that that is interesting to me, and it was like a a kid in a candy shop on a treasure hunt. But we have some old uh, donut tanks, which are tanks that were used to propagate yeast and grow it up. And they had been sitting there um, since, as best I can tell, the early 70s. So I recovered some samples and tried to grow them up and see if we could identify some yeast and so far we have not been successful (laughs) but i have not given up but i i just think that's that's cool
0: that's the lord's work right there
3: (laughs) and 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 to your point on banana you you know usually it comes from a compound called amyl acetate which is um yeast specific and yes our yeast do produce it it's not always present but those compounds will oxidize and change over time so even if it was present you know my guess is that it it might slowly change and oxidize into something that is either not recognizable or it may actually be there analytically. It's just covered up by other things. Is that intentional
1: to select a yeast that you know puts off those properties you're talking about?
3: Well, I think what's intentional when you pick yeast. And th- how long is this show? <laughs> how long you got, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> this is where we like to get geeky with it. Yeah, th- this is this is the fun stuff. So, so when you pick a yeast, you're looking for flavor top uh, first and foremost, but you're also looking for Ability to manage it in a distillery, which means um, how fast does it grow? Does it ferment all of the sugars to completion? Is it susceptible to other things? Some yeast are really susceptible to a little bit of lactic acid bacteria. And, um, and we... Um, have a little bit of acid because we do a sour mash and to me that's super critically important so you're looking for flavor first and foremost but then also the ability to ferment and how well does it is how hard is it to manage in the distillery So those are some of the factors but flavor will always be top of mind
1: what do you mean manage like like how it competes like against other yeast or like how's it
3: well so so you can add dry yeast or sometimes you start literally with a a, um, a petri dish and you grow it up and how easy is it to grow up and when you grow the yeast you know, sometimes you want it to settle so that you get more concentration. So, so just how it performs, how it behaves in the distillery is really important. Is it is like a more
1: aggressive type of yeast more important, or does that matter? Or?
3: You know, I, I think speed of fermentation is important, and and this is an extremely general comment, but if you have a yeast. The faster it ferments, and extremely general, and this can be debated, but the faster it ferments speaks to um, health and more vigor and usually better flavor. So you want a fast-growing yeast, one that's predictable and consistent. So a lot of factors involved. Very cool, big big time.
0: And you're propagating, right, or is it dry yeast?
3: We're adding dry yeast. We do we do a hydration step ahead of time, um, and we're playing around a little bit, but we're using a dry yeast.
0: Okay. It's been so long since I've had these conversations uh, with like Ken Pierce prior to, this was, I, I, I had all these yeast, got all my yeast geeky stuff out of the way with, on Barton, probably, probably right after Sazrek acquired him. So that'd been 2009, 2010, Ken Pierce and I just sit down, he was a longtime blender, master distiller there and. God, I loved. I love just, I just love talking yeast. So thanks for, for this. And I'll just.
1: Danny's like, well, if you figured it out, why are you talking? Why are <laughs> like, well, no, you keep was, pounding me on this? <laughs> it was so, it
0: was so long ago, you know, I mean, things change. And, and like one of the, one of the good examples is, uh, dry yeast is just, you can be more consistent with it. You know, the batches will be more consistent and on propagation is a pain in the ass. So
3: it's a lot of work, you know, I'll I'll tell you though, but I, uh, yeast is a a near and dear to my heart. You know, there's always the debate what percentage of flavor comes from the oak and what, you know, and I, I put fermentation at the very top of that list because all of those flavors that are produced, they come through in a young bourbon, um, more fruity and fresher and brighter. But then as that bourbon ages and as you get, um, evaporation and you get oxygen in the barrel, a lot of those components will change to more complex aromas what i sort of refer to as aged stone fruits you know cherries and apricots and raisins that's not a stone fruit those flavors as they change i think produce the most um, interesting complex aromas They're, they're they're really amongst my favorite
0: it's almost like a it's like a sliding scale like the older it gets the more impact the barrel it has obviously Absolutely, but always at the core of any whiskey. Like if you study it long enough, you will find the yeast having an
3: impact. It's just it's at the core. Absolutely, you know. It's funny. um, We talk about age. I I I sometimes now find myself trying to correct and not talking about a five year old or a ten year old. It really has more to do with maturity, because as I look at how our barrels age, if I've got a barrel on the twenty first rick, the top rick for the most part of our highest floor. At 12 years old, that's going to be very different than a barrel on the bottom floor of our bottom rick of our third floor. They're the same age, but they have totally different maturities. So speaking about age to me is a little bit misleading. We do it. I do it. Trying to correct myself. Trying to rehab myself and talk about maturity and not age. No, it's all good.
0: <laughs> I'd like to tell everyone too that they have the coldest warehouses in all of whiskey. Like I think, <laughs> I think you all and have- hot, hottest too. It, it, those warehouses have so much movement at Barton. That's crazy.
3: It's really interesting when you're in there in the morning time and the sun comes up, things start to creak <laughs> because as the sun comes up and I and when by the way, I should clarify, um it's the siding, the tin siding that's moving a little bit, but but they they're alive
0: yeah i mean we we that's why i brought up aliens earlier with you all <laughs> i mean there was allegedly an alien vessel that landed there and took over a warehouse i made that up that's by the way all these are all facts we just made up The yeah, gravity pull from their all. their ufo and actually ryan's yeah. an alien too so i made that up but,
2: <laughs> but someone's gonna believe it keep it out there at yeah. some point
3: For for the record everything i'm saying i believe to be true <laughs> <laughs> i love it <laughs>
2: You had mentioned that yeast doesn't impact. We all know that yeast has an impact. So in the Danny Con pie chart of what is the impact of yeast versus distillation, all this other kind of stuff, where, where does yeast kind of fit in your, your flavor? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. From TikTok to Instagram and beyond, and get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's point of sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/Bourbon, all lowercase, and go to Shopify.com/Bourbon to take your retail business. To the next level today, shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. You, you had mentioned that yeast doesn't impact. We all know that yeast has an impact. So in the Danny Khan pie chart of what is the impact of yeast versus distillation, all this other kind of stuff, where, where does yeast kind of fit in your your flavor?
1: In the Venn diagram?
2: Well, I'd say, you know, it's, I got a pie chart. People are like, oh, 80% oak or 60% oak. And then some people are like 10% yeah. yeast, 30% yeast.
3: I, I give yeast at least 50%. And, and here's the what's
2: that's a large I, number.
3: I, I really truly do. Because to me, the bourbons wow. that are extremely special are the ones that have these aged stone fruits. You know, for example, everyone knows that a raisin tastes like, I assume. And then uh, grape is a raisin, but it hasn't been dried, so it's fresher and brighter. Raisin is concentrated, gets a little oxidized, gets more complex. Same thing with apricots and cherries. And same thing with fermentation notes. As they age, as they slowly oxidize, they get more interesting, more complex, more intense. Now, during fermentation, you know, and, uh, you am going to be sorry you asked. But anyways, for every pound of sugar, We might have talked about this last time. I think I misquoted. I remember actually. So every pound of sugar in the fermentation or in the mash, you produce approximately a half a pound of alcohol, approximately a half a pound of carbon dioxide, and then three or four hundred different flavor components that are so small they're hard to measure. But that's where the flavor and aroma and mouthfeel come from. So when you have a younger bourbon, you get some of the fresher fermentation notes. Now, I think that if you have a young bourbon that's been put in a secondary toasted cask for example, 80% of that flavor, maybe 90% is oak because it just absolutely dominates. But in you know a standard 53 gallon barrel that's been aging for a while, I think the fermentation complexity increases over time and the really special bourbons to me are the ones that have a balance between oak Components and fermentation components and grain bill is important, but I find it to be a little bit in the background of those two.
1: Yeah, that it's funny you say that because that like the thing I enjoy about younger whiskeys is those fruity, like citrusy kind of components, and that sometimes the oak, even though people like them, they're like, oh, caramel, vanilla, you know, this standard Kentucky. Where I'm like, yeah, but that's not exciting. I like the fruit in there with the the oak and you know some of the caramel and vanilla. So it's I'm glad you said that because I'm I'm right there with you. All right. Already start
0: tasting some whiskey, fellas. Was it? Yeah,
1: yeah. I think before we start doing that,
0: I've been smelling them the whole time. I huh? know,
2: you know, I know. So we've we've done a, a whiskey quickie on these before. So part of the expansion of Barton 1792 was coming out with a Thomas S. Moore line. So we might have touched on this last time. So Thomas S. Moore was a it's a it's a brand that's been around before, and then you all have revived it, but revived it in a much different way. And I'll kind of let you take it from here.
3: Yeah. Um. Let's see. There's probably a few ways to go, but. When, when talking about whiskey, I, I think there's a very important traditional component and, and that's, you know, not this. I think it speaks to those oak flavors and those, you know, when we talk about dusties, the complexity, I love tradition. And, and there's always ways to better understand what makes a bourbon better and stay within the box of tradition. I look at this and, and you know, there's a connection to Thomas S. Moore because he was quite influential he was a powerful figure. I would probably refer to Fred more about Thomas S. Moore and his history, but he was by many measures considered to be an innovator. So when we talk about Thomas S. Moore, sort of our bridge to that person is that this is more along the lines of innovation than it is on tradition. And we will I'm sure we'll get into the details because a lot of people are doing cask-finished bourbons or other cask-finished whiskeys. And there's a couple things that I believe set this apart. But by the way, on the Thomas S. Moore connection, um, something that's interesting to share, but his great-great-grandsons are still in the area. So we met his great-great-grandson, and I, uh, his, no, I'm sorry, uh, I'm thinking Con Con's great-grandson. So Thomas S. Moore's great-great-grandson and one of his great-great-granddaughters, we had the pleasure of giving a tour to the distillery. Wow, and they are um, connected, and they're interested, and um, it was it was a lot of fun. That is cool. It Start was, to connect those dots, you know. So there, there really is a, a group of moors that are living and breathing, and are familiar with their heritage. Yeah,
0: moors, Mattingly. So you know, when we think of like Thomas S. Moore, Mattingly, and Moore is what always kind of pops up with most people in most people's minds. But this was his passion, like his, you know, his namesake and his, you know, having a distillery. And you all actually, it was named for a very brief amount of time. Your distillery was named Tom Moore for a very brief amount of time. And then they changed it to 1792. Then it was Barton 1792. I mean, it's had a few name changes over the years. But Thomas Moore kind of gets, he kind of gets lost in the late 1800s, you know, personalities of George T. Stagg, Atherton, Colonel Taylor a lot of those bigger personalities. I mean, this guy was just making whiskey. You know, he was just making whiskey and he was someone that was thought to be a great whiskey maker. And that was, I think that's, everyone else had a, a, like a big personality and would, would stand out. And, and, you know, he was
3: just putting something good across the table. That's kind of his rep. And, and on the bottle, that, that horse image is, is as close as we could come to replicating what he used. And that specifically was the Bell of Nelson County. And it was a, I believe, a Kentucky Oaks race winner. So he used it on several bottles. Oh,
2: so it's just not yet another representation of a horse on a bottle
3: because we know it sells. <laughs> no. No, it's, it's, there, it's, is a, there is a connection. was before
1: it, Blaine's time.
3: <laughs> and I, I actually, um, so I've, I've got this book called, I think it's Bardstown Pre-Prohibition Distilleries that was put together. Oh, by yeah. Dixie Hibbs. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, and I brought it to- mayor. Yes, yes. I brought it to my office this morning. I actually have it with me now. And I, my intent was to to read it a little bit before I came here <laughs> and validate some of my facts, but I didn't get a chance to do we'll so. check. Another there, good
0: yeah. one for you to read, if you want to like, uh, it, it followed tax records. It was uh, Chet Zoller's book, uh, Trey Zoller's dad. You know, he basically has every tax record in uh, Kentucky history in that book.
3: Oh, well, that's awesome. That, that's that would be interesting. I'm, I will look that up.
0: It's for the geeks like us. Yeah. Yes.
2: I'd say so. So the other thing that's was unique about the Thomas S. More side is that these are just not cask finishes. These are extended cask finishes, correct me if I'm wrong.
3: Yeah. And you know, you know, my marketing people hate this. Hopefully they well, hopefully they will listen. But I but I um, often They better listen. I often um <laughs>
0: You're the boss, Danny. Don't whatever. Yeah. <laughs> You're
3: you the know, boss. You know, you know, sometimes marketing is not always um always genuine. The example I give is I, saw, I saw a bag of potato what? chips once that said cholesterol free. And although that is true, I don't think ever in the history of potato chips have any ever had cholesterol. So to say <laughs> cholesterol free <laughs> was somewhat disingenuous. But they do it. contribute. To it. Yes. <laughs> However, in this case, they nailed it because we are referring to these as extended cask finishes. And how I like to explain that is, um, as far as I know, The majority of cask-finished whiskeys, cask-finished bourbons, are put into a cask for two to four or six months. That's That's, correct. that's, That's my experience. Yeah. So what I find you get out of that is the flavor of the juice that was in that prior cask. Okay? So we get that. But in addition, I think there are two more really important components. By aging it for anywhere from two to five additional years, and that's what these represent, you start to extract some of the oak that was in that secondary cask. And those barrels were finished very differently than bourbon barrels are. Um, They're oak from different regions. They're different size barrels. They're toasted different ways. In the wine world, for example, they will typically use barrels three times as far as I recall. And by the way, I did work in wine way back when I was in college. So I actually got a little knowledge from that. But each time you put wine in a barrel and then dump it, you extract a little bit more tannin. So as you use for this purpose, a barrel that was used three times with wine versus one time, you're gonna get different levels of tannins. So you get different extraction levels from those secondary barrels. So that's another component of extended cask finish. And then lastly, by holding a bourbon in one of these barrels for five years, you're effectively getting five more years of normal aging. So you get a little bit of loss, a little bit of angel share. You get a little bit more oxidation in the barrel. So you get some of those more traditional age notes. So the extended cask finish adds many layers of complexity and it sort of makes it harder because the approval process for these that we'll get into at some point, I'm sure, was pretty crazy. You
0: yeah. mean the product or the, the label?
3: Oh, not the label. I, I have very little to do with the okay. label um in fact, but the, I would say I have nothing to do with the label.
0: So what what's the approval process like? Let's say, let's let's here. start
2: drinking sure. the first one cuz the first one I think we have here is the Madeira cask if I'm not You're starting on uh, right. Cognac. To your
1: your hand on the left. That would be the cognac.
2: Oh, sorry. Yes, hand, on the left. Hand I started start on the right. We're Everybody going else started on right. the left. Yes, I was so starting right. On the left is the the, the cognac cask. So let's let's talk about the approval process as well as we're kind of going through this.
3: Yeah, sure. So so we put um you know bourbon into a barrel and we know the bourbon going in the barrel is good. And by the way, For me, and I'm still exploring this, I think the sweet spot is between five and six years, I think. And again, remember I was talking about age. Maturity is really the question, but that's a relatively well-matured whiskey. If you go longer, if you go eight, 10, 12 years, I find that those oak components don't play nicely with the secondary barrel. So having a slightly younger bourbon, I think... Lends itself to be more complementary to the flavors that I that I describe.
0: Probably, especially with the longer aging process. I,
3: I think so, and I've got a couple experiments going on to try and identify what that'll be. Where we're at on the rig? Oh are yeah, these like uh, you doing them on the first floor, second? So these are the secondary finish uh, by design is in our one palletized warehouse, so okay. it's a little bit cooler, and um, it it really helps slow down some of those reactions. So what happens is. For one of these, let's talk about the Madeira because that one was really quite interesting. And just in terms of That's the blending the, process. the far right. The far, far right. right. Yeah, or, or the Sherry, both of those sort of apply. Danny can nose them until And, and actually, actually, <laughs> let's talk about the Sherry because the color in the Sherry really stands out as being quite unique. So what happens mm-hmm. is, and, and this is no exaggeration, but I tasted every single barrel of the sherries. and that represented, gosh, it was probably 500. And of course, that was not done in one sitting. I have a system. I'm doing 40 of them at a time. What I'll do is I will sniff them and I will make my comments and I will put them into buckets. So there may be nutty, there may be fruity, there may be oaky. So basically, I put them into three or four different buckets. And then I will go back and I will sniff them again and then taste them and put those into buckets. And when all of the sherrys are done, I have sub-blends. And from those sub-blends, I will then create a final blend. And I will get, you know, we've got another panel that will um, do some validation. I will have them taste the sub blends and then I'll have them taste the recommended blend, you know, because it's, it's really difficult to have one person in my opinion, making all the taste comments. What if I'm blind to a particular off note? And, And I am, you know, we're all blind to some things. So that last step becomes really one of validation. So again, I, I, I sort them and then some are rejected just right off the bat. And, um, sub blends to create the final blend. So it's a process.
2: And this is what we're tasting is the the 2022 releases that's going to be a little bit different than you had last time, correct?
3: Yeah, totally different. Yeah, cuz uh we re, this this release we've got cognac, uh, merlot, sherry, and madeira. Okay.
2: And remember last time there was a port, a chardonnay, chardonnay, and a, no, I can't remember the third one. Cabernet. Cabernet. So, yeah. uh, so far, I will say that we were we, were, we tasted the first Three that were released. I think we liked the port one out of all three of them, but there were some other ones that I I thought were just a little too bitter. So far, after tasting the first three here, of course the cognac, everybody loves cognac cask, but you know Not when you
0: really, get, I mean, I think that can be, I think that can be overdone.
2: Fred, it's just you. All right, back back. You, you uh, and
0: your sweet oak. Note. Let me <laughs> That's let me right.
2: let me stay in my lane over here. No, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, but it's, it's so far, I felt like this is this is much more redeeming. Like I think I think this is a, a much better release than what was in 2021 so far from tasting these three.
3: You know, I'm I'm super happy with these. What's also interesting is that, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a bourbon guy. And I, I will I will drink these on my shelf too. But I I like bourbons more than I personally do finished, you know, bourbons in a in a finished cask. However, what's what's interesting, we talk about innovation, and one of the things that I, I think I'm getting better at all the time, I like bourbon. Hopefully your fans will not um, hate me for this, but I also appreciate well made cocktails. And I find that to be an oh, art. Oh, we're big cocktail people. Right? Oh, yeah. Don't and, you worry about that. And my, my cocktails are always going to be very spirit forward. And these allow for a whole new avenue to create and explore and make flavors. So it's, it's pretty amazing how these can work. And I find myself going to these more often than I had in the past. I mean, you're hitting all those stone fruit notes on all three of
1: these. But the nice thing about them is they're not like Sometimes a lot of finished products, it just comes like overly grapey or overly, you know, just too much that. I like on these how there's that little bit of oak influence, but there's that nice like cinnamon spice too on the back end to kind of round it out.
3: Yeah. And you know, what's interesting what I'm starting to learn because as we put bourbon in barrels, I, I taste them now, you know, every six months. Of course, not every barrel, but it's interesting. Your point exactly is that, When they're very fresh in the barrel, I tend to get the juice extraction. Like we were talking about, all finished casks get the juice extraction. And then with the extended cask, you get the age from the oak and then the normal aging. And I think that a lot of the fruity notes tend to blend better over time. And that's kind of, I think that's what you're speaking to.
0: So when we look at barrel finishes, it's a category that often the finishing barrel will overpower the the whiskey and there's not been a lot done with madeira and the madeira I personally love love madeira and like uh Angel's envy had an incredible uh madeira cask finish last year I lo- I just loved it and savored it to the last drop and this this one is is so so different Um, it's, it's, it's almost like the, the bourbon kind of took over the cask in some ways and like, kind of found like, if you were look at it as like, you know, what one in the, in the marriage bourbon one, but there's the accent of, of Madeira. So, you know, this is kind of like holding true to some of those bourbon values that you, you kind of hold to. I would, I would say that for the cognac finish as well, the sherry finish to me it definitely had a lot more presence of the sherry. What kind of sherry cask were you using on this? Uh, That's
2: what well, I was about to say. I really enjoy the sherry cask because it's it's definitely a big influence, and you yeah. can tell by the color yeah. alone on it.
3: It's, yeah, it's, it's it, oloroso, and 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 also it's in this this one represents three different ages that go from I think two to three to four. Um, the vast majority are the older ones, and when we put. The sherry casks together, there was more variability in color than there was in any other one. And and with more color comes more flavor. And what's really interesting too, definitely the most flavorful, a lot of discussion about that. But, you know, there's always the debate in the bourbon world to chill filter or not to chill filter. And, you know, that's to prevent hazes from forming, you know, free fatty acids flocculating and looking a little sort of snow globey. In the case of these, and and I think in general, not chill filtering provides more aroma and more flavor. And sometimes the flavor can be a little bit negative. If you get some of those bigger chain free fatty acids, it gets kind of waxy and coarse. But what was interesting here is that we did some experiments to determine should we chill filter them or not. And by chill filtering them, it was amazing. I mean, for you guys, I probably should have done this, probably should have brought the chill phase and, or the chill filter, not chill filtered, because it brought, to your point, Fred, more bourbon character out. It mellowed it. It mm-hmm. brought, it took away some of the extremes that made it a little bit unbalanced. So by chill filtering it, it kind of tied it together and just made it bet more balanced. That's the best way to put it.
0: And, and that's one of the, one of the, probably the few cases that I would make for chill filtration, because that is, it that you know, you have like a foreign barrel entering with a spirit that's not used to being in that barrel. And there can be, you know, we're still barrel finishes have only really been happening for the last decade, you know, in American whiskey. So I think as a category, it's still kind of getting fleshed out. And, 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 you know, every single, every single one that goes past that, like doesn't suck line is an added bonus. And I think, you know, when you when you when this came out last year the one thing that really stood out to me was was the price point because most of these barrel finishes are not are not accessible to people and so this this line is is a really good way for people to connect with some of the some of the barrels that are being finished with with American whiskey your techniques very different than most people but um, I think this is this is an incredible uh, addition to the to the category.
3: Yeah, thank you. It's it's a lot of fun, and and by the way, um, you know, it's come up before. You know, art versus science, and um, it's actually come up a lot in the last couple of weeks. I really thrive on the science which takes place in the distillery. I think that this blending exercise is one hundred percent art. You know, what are the flavors? How do, you know, how does one pair them together to make a better product? So, so it's a, it's a really Fun exercise in blending. I just poured the merlot, and it's a uh, way more unique
1: than all of them. Like it's got more of an earthy, almost like mushroom kind of finish on it or something. What's I was going say, on there? It's I was like, about to say I was gonna kinda of point to that one too. To be fair, I,
0: this is probably get the Merlot.
2: Here, we, can, we can give you a little Merlot.
1: You are not drinking Merlot. No, I'm
2: <laughs> but I, I was I was gonna say just to be fair and uh, my opinion is fair and balanced. Is that this was probably my, my least favorite um only because I felt like it has a lot of those those bitter characteristics that I'm not a fan of, but Ryan probably described it more as earthy. Um but yeah it's kind
1: of like when you get a, a good wine, like to me you kinda like you talk about Terrar and whatnot you kind of it tastes like almost the dirt the soil like you know the the earthiness of where those vines are growing and whatnot but i keep I, going back and trying it just to make sure my, my palate's still aligned but it's interesting it's it's like a it's something different it's it's out of all the four it's definitely the most unique
3: yeah I, you know i think i think you're hitting on something i almost describe it as being a little bit savory and um, yeah exactly with the mushroom kind of richness there's some interesting components of the merlot that um that were also present in some of last year's Cabernet and to a larger degree the Chardonnay. There's a specific type of component that I would agree comes out as being a little bit earthy that is a function of the wine more than it is anything else because again it was really quite parallel.
0: That's Merlot, all right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. So Ryan, go yep. back go back into these you can smell that yeast, that yeast note in there. It, oh yeah, it, right in but, all three of them. Right
1: before we started drinking, them, when we were, I was hearing y'all talk about yeast, and maybe it was because you were talking about banana. But I get the same banana note on the Barton as well, and on yeah. all three of them. Even though they were cast finished, you could subtly note, smell that on on the all these.
3: You know what's really neat too is to try these next to you know our seventeen ninety two small batch, similar proof, and um, then you really get an exaggerated understanding of what that secondary cast provides yeah
1: once again what i love about these is like most time to me i feel like barrel finishes are to hide something to like like you talked about earlier with a young whiskey going to a toasted barrel so you can get more of those toasted flavors to kind of mask some of the young youth identity this is just like a perfect balance Uh, it's like it's accentuating it's not like being dominant and I, I'm really fascinated by that. And I've never really experienced that with a finished product.
0: Like, these. you know, it's interesting. You mentioned that it's usually to like mask something and that's so true. And it's almost like barrel finishes for a lot of distillers became like juniper for a craft or for a gin distillers. As uh, Kenny has poured us some Tom Moore. This is um, one of my favorite dusty whiskeys. I day. love Tom Moore. Thank you. I think this one is uh, definitely smelling different. Than uh, what we just, what we just had. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, it is. Well, I just figured, you know, we've got Danny here. Danny's been so kind, brought
2: a bunch of different whiskeys for us to try in the past. I said, let me go in my closet here and find one. So this is a, a Tom Moore. It says a fine light whiskey aged five years, 80 proof, bottled by Tom Moore Distillers, Bardstown, Nelson, Kentucky. But it says out of Los Angeles, California.
3: Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. I, I knew right away it was not a bourbon. It's, 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 it's a light whiskey yes. for sure.
2: But that was uh, just pulled
3: out of my dusty stash, and I was like, "We gotta, we gotta crack this one open."
0: Lion whiskey is a conversation for another time.
3: It it's, is. It's a, it's a oh, great it's conversation. So <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if it was bottled in Los Angeles. I mean, that must have been what that means. Well, let's. See.
2: Oh, know, we'll, let, we'll let Fred kind of take care of that one. But, Decipher the label. Ugh.
3: Yeah, <laughs> but you know, the other you know, thing. Sorry, on, on the Thomas S. Moore's, um, there, there's a lot of um, loss. There's a lot of barrels that I have just deemed that are not usable. So um, you know, they're gonna they're gonna get you know, sold the waste. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, this, so t- this light whiskey is a little piece of history. Light whiskey comes in in uh, late 1960 when bourbon's kind of left for dead and everyone's, you know, trying to catch up to vodka. And they created this category called light whiskey. Uh, it's distilled at a higher proof point. It goes into used barrels. And the whole purpose was to like have something that was a little less neutral or a little more neutral, less flavorful. The bourbon, so people could drink this at lunch versus uh, you know, a martini. It failed miserably. And uh the light whiskey that's out today is actually, you know, pretty palatable. But uh You're not a fan of this one? Ooh. It's a little bit different. It's a little well, bit different. I like it. it's. it's I mean, different. Actually, what? no, I wasn't gonna say I'm not a fan of it. No, it's okay. You can are not a fan but of it. like uh at, at 80 proof it tastes hot.
3: it's interesting. There's some clearer age dusty components going on. Um, I think it's pleasant. It reminds me of you know, some Canadian whiskeys, you know, that's it's, what they, that's do. they what make they, light whiskey. That's
0: what they use. They use a lot of light whiskey in their blending. Yeah, it's almost got like a syrupy sugar kind of
1: flavor in there, almost.
0: It's, it's Fortunately, you know, they cannot they cannot add anything to it for light whiskey. For light whiskey. Yeah. Gotcha.
2: Well, I should have probably done a little homework and tax stamp research. I, I don't know the exact date, but I'm sure it's...
0: Oh, uh, this this is uh, circa 69 to 75. There we go. So
3: It's awesome. Thanks for sharing that.
2: Hey, thanks for bringing some whiskey for us to try and be able to talk about this. I think it's exciting. You know, kudos to you. I know this is some like probably one of the first line extensions that really has the Danny Kahn stamp on it, right? This is kind of like your baby that you're you're running with. So yeah, so last year was.
3: and this year, yeah. Yeah.
2: So congratulations on on kind of making that happen and, and sort of putting that putting that you know as your mark right now in, in bourbon history. So really cool.
0: Yeah, and it's it's important uh, that the Bart the, the Master Distiller Barton gets like gets proper recognition because it's such an important distillery for the for the lifeblood. Of, of American whiskey, because, you know, whether you like it or not, there's a lot of stuff that's brokered out and like has, and it continues to surface and everything. And so you, you touch so many brands and as long as you all are making good whiskey, that's good for, that's good for the category.
3: Well, we're certainly um, doing the best we can and there's some, there's some cool things. On the horizon. Who knows what's going to be next for Thomas S. Moore? Can't wait for the next podcast. There are. There are. He already knows what on. it's going to be because remember, it
0: started a few years ago. Yeah, so right, he already exactly. knows what's in the hopper.
3: Yeah, but we don't know what's going to come out. Some of them will not come out. But, you know, honestly, we're doing testing some Calvados. Arm- Armagnac, Amaroni, you know. Got Amaroni, some, uh, got Tokay or Tokei. I don't know. Oh, yeah, which... Tokei. What's tukai?
0: Tokai is a Hungarian uh, grape that actually Slovenia and uh, Hungary uh, had a world court lawsuit over over who had the rights. Slovenia actually had the stronger case, but they lost. Was and it a uh, a spirit? It's a wine. It's a sweet okay.
3: wine. Gotcha. It's a sweet wine. And there's uh, a few variations within that category, but they're quite unique.
0: But there was uh, there was a lot of Tokai that was so sold by uh, barrels that were sold by barrel brokers. That was actually a French fortified wine. It was just you know, poorly classified. How do you know this? There's a lot. <laughs> there's just a. There's a, the some some apparently. like juicy stuff about Tokai because Tokai is like, we're 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 talking like mob related kind of stuff in like you know Europe. So like, there's a lot of like uh, sketchy shit around Tokai. It's a whole. It's very fast.
3: We, we better like... we better do our homework before we release it just yeah. to make sure. Hey,
0: listen. The, if you need <laughs> if you need to send uh, the three of us some samples, why do
2: that? We'll just show up at the distillery. We'll just show up and be like, hey, let's try that non sheltered versus yeah. chill-filtered stuff and we'll, we'll figure this out. We'll be the judge. Wee-oo.
1: I feel like every time I text Fred and he says, I can't, I'm busy. He's in some rabbit hole of some crazy spirit just uh, trying to learn God, about geez. it. <laughs> it uh,
0: the, what I do for fun is read lawsuits and uh, tax tax don't, law and weird don't shit don't like that. Down the rabbit hole.
2: But let's go ahead. We'll br- kind of bring it back here again. But Danny, thank you again for coming on the show for a second time. And again, bringing and being able to talk about Thomas S. Moore. Last time you brought some, some crazy bourbon to talk about. Now we kind of get to talk about, you know, really what you're coming out with. And this is a, a great representation of what it is and sharing all your knowledge about yeast and fermentation with our listeners as well. I'm sure there's a lot of geeks out there that really ate it up.
3: I love talking to you guys. Well, Happy to sure. come back anytime.
2: Well, always fun. Invitation's we'll, open. Yeah, we'll keep it a yearly thing. We'll see if we can make it happen. But cool. definitely, uh, if you have, if people want to follow you, you have a, a social media thing that you're trying to keep up with. Remember last time, you were like, yeah, I kind of got an Instagram, but I'm not too sure if I keep up
3: with it. Yeah, so it's 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 pretty inactive. But I I, I <laughs> mean I I I'm not putting a lot of effort in. Let's put it that way. But it is Danny Kahn K A H N Bourbon um, on Instagram. Danny Kahn Bourbon.
2: Oh, cool so make sure you follow him follow us bourbon pursuit wherever you get your socials and our buddy fred minnick over here and if you want to make sure you never miss an episode go to our website bourbonpursuit.com sign up for our mailing list and you can always always leave us a review whether it's good whether it's bad but please only leave good ones it's one we like to read but with that cheers everybody <laughs>